one two one two there we go i'm just checking the levels got a different microphone to the previous episodes of this hello i'm robin ince this is my podcast taking the universe around the world and it is well really my diaries of traveling around the world with professor brian cox we're taking our show uh, horizons around the world and uh we started with warm-up gigs um all over england we did like like some quite small venues like kind of 300 seaters and 400 seats and then got bigger and bigger and then um eventually we're at places like the o2 with about thirteen thousand people and um which is kind of fun and silly as well and we're doing the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere and i think the last time that i spoke to you i was in minneapolis Saturday in Minneapolis. I think dizzying excitement made me a little eccentric in the Minneapolis Institute of Art gift shop, but those behind the counter were delightful. I almost didn't make it to the museum and I so wanted to. Brian had an interview in the morning with Space.com, so I strolled to the nearest bookshop and, as has become my habit, photographed the underside of concrete bridges as I went. The bookshop, the one I mentioned earlier, James and Mary Laurie Booksellers, was shut when I arrived but on the shelf outside the store there were some Perry Masons and I had an inkling that my Earl Stanley Gardner collecting pal may be short of two or three of the titles there. Having previously failed in Boston with the case of the baited hook, I was certain there were two titles she didn't have. The carpet man told me that James would be back later. I returned for our date with boxing and other exercise. Last time, we exercised by an inauspicious riverbank. This time, Brian has researched the lay of the land and found a splendid park for us. As we swing out of the revolving door, Brian instantaneously turns in the wrong direction. We don't know where we're going, but we know it's not that way. From there on, for some peculiar reason, we trust him. After 30 minutes we find ourselves at the sculpture park and we don't feel that we can punch so near to people enjoying giant cherries on a spoon. Not to worry, Brian has spied a lake on his phone. We get to the lake and it's the sort of lake where unmanly people throw in their broken bicycles and cruel people drown their kittens. We end up exercising at the back of a building near where the trash is taken out and some kind of generator. We ache. My head is busy with excuses to leave the fitness early, but I stick around to the abs and beyond. Brian decides we'll get an Uber back, as he was unnerved by some drunks in the theatre district on the way there. Though he never actually said that out loud. On the drive back, we see that we were about one block away from a really lovely park with a really lovely lake and a lovely space to box and breathe. Why did we trust him? Brian goes for another of his naps, and I go back to James and Mary's. It's a wonderful antiquarian bookshop with many collectibles, and yet again I had to make sure they didn't have a copy of Practically True, the Holy Grail book by Ernest Thesiger. Actor, soldier, raconteur, and inspirational embroiderer. When I ask after it, James looks very confused. He's hard of hearing, and I think he reckons I'm probably making the book up. Also, I get that sense that he's looking at me as if to say, what the hell is a man without a bow tie doing in my lovely collectibles bookshop? He better not touch the collectible Samuel Johnsons. I depart with the two Perry Masons. Finding books for other people can be as pleasing as finding them for yourself.
As I walk across a parking lot, I see that I'm watched over by Bob Dylan's of Loving Grace. A vast mural of rainbow colours charts three faces of Dylan and promises still that the times they are a-changing. Even as we feel that there are so many that are determined to make sure that any times that have changed are taken back for regression. I'm tired from touring and I'm tired from boxing. And perhaps I'm too tired to walk the couple of miles to the Institute of Art while others are safely dozing their way through the universe. But I decide that I must have tenacity. I must not relax. Brian often questions this. I'm perpetually jittery. Why don't you relax? Relaxation carries guilt with it. I can procrastinate, but I can't relax. I'm quite sure I'm not genetically Anglican the religion of my childhood. I have the DNA of a far more guilt-ridden religion, perhaps why so many of my heroes are Jewish. I walk along the sidewalks where multi-storey car parks seem to perpetually tower on both sides of the street. Yet again, I am one of the very few pedestrians. Though a graduate walks by in his gown and a car of strangers shout out congratulations. As I approach the Art Institute, I start to spy numerous photographic shoots for those about to wed and those who are just married. You look beautiful, is shouted out at two women in satin gowns, yet again by another group of strangers in a car. Minneapolis is a very positive place. I only have an hour, so I rush straight to the exhibition of Haunted America. It's the penultimate day of this exhibition. The exhibition is full of the tattooed and the young. And on the walls, apparitions, poltergeists and painted portents of imminent doom. You see, it's these painted portents of imminent doom that are so much more attractive to the young than another exhibition about the Impressionists. The exhibition is a fabulous cornucopia of deaths foretold, ghosts reimagined and UFOs. Sometimes very poorly drawn, but passionately drawn. Some are traditionally haunting, others are the work of outsider artists with a message about alien interventions. I'm also always happy to see the work of Dorothea Tanning, who, as well as creating wonderful art toying with the subconscious and the unconscious, wrote a gothic novel called Chaos later in her career. Her work often involved doors and mirrors, and she once stated that she used to think she was painting on this side of the mirror, but now she'd walked over to the other side of it. I knew nothing of Prophet Royal Robertson until today, a Louisiana-based artist who believed that he had frequent contact with interdimensional and interplanetary beings. There was Patrick J. Sullivan's Fourth Dimension and Messina Barton's Flying Saucers with Snakes as well. I frequently found myself thinking of how William Blake had multiple ways of perceiving the world, which he knew to be true, but also which he knew was only his truth and no one else's. And I see another Sylvia Fine in this exhibition. Sylvia Fine's Lady Magician looks at the artist's ability to control mysterious forces. Dula Marie Evans Crable, Ivan Albright, Helen Lunderberg. So much to savour here. And you must, I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned Ivan Albright before, but Ivan Albright does this incredible work which kind of mixes the fact that even in youth we are so close to our ultimate decrepitude, which is why Ivan Albright was the painter of the picture of Dorian Gray, which was used in the 1940s film with Herd Hadfield. I myself don't believe 
in a world of escaping souls, ghosts and alien visitations that many of these artists do. But I rejoice in the very real existence of these things in their minds and their attempt to use art to create that tangibility to their fantastical notions. All of this art meant that I was late for a very, very late lunch. But I rushed to the shop, hoping there was a book of the exhibition and was elated that there was. Thank you again, by the way, to the people in the bookshop who were absolutely fantastic. The Minneapolis audience tonight is feisty in the best way. Brian has promised that this will be the shortest show we've ever done. A Saturday night show start late and physics can be tough to construe after a third beer on a very hot day. But at the time that I was writing this, we were still yet to see if this scientist can conquer time. By the way, also this venue has one unsavoury memory for me because last time we were here, I ate a risotto that did not agree with me and it started to disagree with me about four minutes before the show began. The effect eventually verged on the volcanic and I would find myself running from straight and I would find myself running from stage to restroom, restroom to stage and hope that all could be kept in at least for the running time of the final poem that I was performing. Tonight though, all is internally steady. In the first bit of Brian and me jousting on stage, I heard a young Cox fan turn to his mum and say, oh, but that's mean. But he had the last laugh when this young fan looked utterly perplexed at the idea that I could be younger than Brian. Tonight's audience questions include, from the perspective of a photon, is time passing? OK, the universe is expanding, objects moving farther apart. Is this true of all matter? For instance, are the particles of me moving farther apart too? And if so, how much taller am I now than I was before your lecture began? Would Brian be more likely to pilot the Millennium Falcon with Chewie or travel on the USS Enterprise as the science officer? Brian chose being Han Solo rather than Spock. I suggest that this might be because he has a kind of sartorial style of Han Solo, but at the same time he does sometimes display the emotional range of Spock. That position, Mr Scott, would not only be unavailing, but also undignified. At the end of the night, I'm 16 floors up in my hotel room. But despite the distance, the ecstatic Saturday night of Minneapolis rattles my window. Everyone is having a good time. I should be in Omaha right now, but I'm not in Omaha, and uh, that's down to a decision of uh, of Brian Cox's. The decision was he just suddenly looked a few days uh, before we started our journey to Omaha. Uh, basically, we, we're not we weren't doing a gig in Omaha. Omaha was our stop-off in a two-day trip, which was going to take us from uh, Minneapolis down to Denver. And Brian suddenly went, it's going to take two days. And both of the days, we've got to travel overnight on the bus. We could just take the plane. It'll take an hour and it'll be wonderful. So that's what we did. Instead of getting on the tour bus with uh, a wonderful driver, Jeremy, who was uh, a lovely man, uh, the tour bus was uh, taken off the road a couple of days early. And we took the plane instead to Denver. And we did get there in about an hour, uh, an hour and a half. And uh, so I could see his point. I mean, I would have loved to have gone to Omaha 
I just love I love the sound of the name Omaha Omaha it's got it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely name and it's in Nebraska and Nebraska is one of my favourite Bruce Springsteen albums so that connection between the sound of Omaha and also the sound of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska in my head all of it would have been very jolly but equally it was quite nice just to get to the city we were playing next in the space of uh, an hour and a half and uh, instead of being in Nebraska the first thing that we did when we got to Denver was Brian was of course hungry because he gets hangry very quickly so when he's hangry we make sure that his hunger can be sated and uh, at this point of talking to you we have just eaten desserts that are so sugary that I have kind of had to immediately go and brush my teeth because my teeth began to feel as if they were melting. My internal organs started to feel like kind of candy floss, but not good candy floss, like kind of candy floss, which has also caught flies and has bits of spider's web in it and has like a kind of, you know, a, a little beetle kind of trapped, trapped in in its it, it, its pink sugary strand. So I feel like I've got bad candy floss in it. So uh, brush my teeth. And as I brush my teeth, I actually almost felt like I was consciously tensing my gums to, to make sure that my teeth stayed in my head. And we also had, we had one of those, those uh, wonderful uh, American waiters who was overly attentive. You know, he was uh, he was that kind of Jean Paul Sartre waiter. I think it's the, the waiter that's written about in in Being uh, or Nothingness, which is is a book. One of those books that I buy every few years. I've probably got about four copies now. Imagining that if I buy enough copies, one day I'll suddenly actually manage to read the book itself. But I don't think it's ever going to happen. But in Being or Nothingness, talking about that that waiter who's kind of playing the part of the waiter who's so attentive that it goes beyond being a waiter to 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 being a kind of um yeah this this, this kind of exaggerated model this uh a ray harryhausen monster of a waiter though i think that's not really the correct description but jean paul sartre says his movement is quick and forward a little too precise a little too rapid he comes toward the patrons with a step a little too quick. He bends forward a little too eagerly. His voice, his eyes express an interest a little too solicitous for the order of the customer. So there we go. That's what I've read of being or nothingness. Um, and uh, it's, uh, my, I mean, my main interest in John Paul Sartre, I've got a few, but one of the main ones is just that period of time that he took too much mescaline and started seeing lots of lobsters. There were, there, there were, there were lobsters in his delusional field of vision for quite a while. And uh, so, yeah, he, he basically, he, he suffered from, from delusions of lobsters. And uh, which I think actually is probably um, a good title for that book Jordan Peterson wrote that of people bought because he's got a kind of interest in lobsters which is um, at at times apparently according to lobster experts um, inaccurate as well Um, but anyway yes so uh, we, we got to Denver and uh, and had that sugary dessert and beforehand we'd had this you know like when we were on the plane and once it began its ascent, like there was this wonderful broad smile on Brian's face because he just, he just loves to fly. It was like he thought he was going to be on a bus and buses were going to be fine. He'd have a little bunk bed and he'd have a little sleep. But this the, the joy as we go into the air. And for me, there is such delight in experiencing his excitement, um, especially if it's one of his favourite passenger jets. Uh, this one wasn't. But he's still in the clouds, and you just see this the the beatific face that you sometimes see on his various different wonder shows where he's just look at that he's so shiny um on the plane there uh to denver i was I was reading the big book of the supernatural America exhibition, and uh it was one of those times where as luck wouldn't have it, 
when the stranger sat next to me on the plane, I unwittingly turned the page onto the image of Carolee Schneemann's interior scroll, uh, in which she removed a scroll from her vagina. Um, and while she was doing that, she read from it. It's it's a it's an image you may well know if you don't know. It's one of the images most often used uh, in performance art books and things like that because it is it's quite a striking image as she's pulling this scroll uh, from within her. But it's one of those moments that when a stranger first sits next to you and first of all they see this weird bearded old man and then they see that he's looking at a book uh, where someone is pulling a scroll out of their vagina. It's yeah. It's, you know, it's one of those things where it would probably be worse if I started to explain the particular nature of that performance art ritual. It's best just to turn the page onto one of uh, a far more, well, when I say innocuous, that almost makes it, it was actually an image of Dorothea Tannings, who's one of my favourite artists. So it was far from innocuous, but um, I feel people would have judged me less on it should they judge me um, at all. And uh, I think it was that picture that was the reason that the stranger who sat next to me then just feigned sleep for the rest of the journey, fearing that I might actually engage her in conversation to explain the scroll. And uh, also on the flight, I read a couple of issues of Broken Pencil, which uh, I bought in uh, in Toronto. In uh, Oh, man, I've forgotten the name of the shop. It's a, uh, the, the Bewildering. I'm sure I've mentioned before, the bewildering is this wonderful... By the way, I'm sorry, every now and again, you might hear the sound of an alert that says I'm getting a message uh, from the computer that I'm recording this on. This is because I've forgotten how to turn off alerts. I'm a 53-year-old idiot, and uh, so every now and again when you hear a bring, that's for no other reason than my own technical ineptitude. But anyway, I the, the bewildering... Fantastic comic shop in uh, Toronto, and I bought these magazines called Broken Pencil on zines and alternative culture, and it was just, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. In fact, I was very careful because when I then went into my bag to take out those books, I thought, oh, no, one of the issues is uh, all about fascists and how fascists have used zine culture. And I thought, but again, if I go straight from the interior scroll into them pulling out a magazine with a swastika on it, again, well, strangers can judge you on, on those kind of things. And once we were in Denver, on on the way into Denver, and uh, there was a, one of those lovely Mork and Mindy moments, because, as you know, every now and again during this tour, there have been moments that have reminded me of Robin Williams, because Robin Williams was such an icon to me when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, and uh, and, and so he's kind of left for me an imprint on various different destinations where either I remember where he's recorded albums or TV shows or films that he was in or whatever it might be and as we're driving from the airport we see the sign for Boulder Colorado and uh, Brian starts to kind of uh, sing the theme tune to Mork and Mindy and the last time I was in Denver was 1988 and that was I would say the peak of my Robin Williams obsession um, in every single city that I went to as I toured around America I would seek out Robin Williams memorabilia Robin Williams reports uh, and recordings I would seek out uh, any magazine I've got you know, like still got some of the copies of things like Rolling Stone with him on the cover with these uh, these, these these wonderful interviews with him and I think it was in Denver though I might be wrong where I found my first Jonathan Winters LP Down to Earth uh, 
Um, I'm sure some of you listening, if you're, if you're a fan of, of Robin Williams or of American comedy generally, you will know Jonathan Winters was uh, huge, a fantastic, br- brilliant uh, and, and fascinating comedian, kind of creating all these different characters on stage. And Robin Williams, for him, he, he was a huge hero. Uh, Robin Williams absolutely loved Jonathan Winters because he was so groundbreaking and he, he influenced Robin Williams' stand-up, if you've heard some of those kind of albums like reality what a concept um you can kind of hear some of the influence on 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 the voices and the way that robin williams creates the worlds when he's on stage um and and jonathan winters if you don't know also ends up playing the son of mork and of course because in mork and mindy uh if you're from the planet orc we kind of do a, a benjamin button reverse aging thing so jonathan winters was older than robin williams but he was uh his child in that also i have fond memories of being in denver uh and seeing the film big with tom hanks for the first time and uh and it was uh, it was on that day when we went to see big that i had that kind of shock of realizing just how heavily armed the u.s police were um, I was trying to find where this cinema was and uh, there was a police car there and I kind of went over to it and, and then I leaned towards the open window to ask directions and just saw the size of the pump action shotgun in the police car and um, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those moments of of seeing I suppose that, that, that omnipresent but, but dark side of, uh, of the strange uh, split personality of America, a country that I absolutely I, I adore traveling around it. And then also, I suppose, like like England as well. And then there's so much in terms of the uh, the, 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 the propaganda and some of the kind of the, 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 the small groups that have managed to gain so much power to bring their uh, un, unpleasant, um, sometimes barbaric regulations in. But um, anyway, we can talk about more more about that later on. Um, when we actually got into Denver, it was, I think, of all the cities that I'd revisited, there were, there's a few cities we've been to that I've not been to since 1988. And most of them, I can eventually start picking up the details of the city as it was 34 years ago. But Denver now, there has been so much concrete uh, which has ascended uh, across the city since 1988 that I, I, I couldn't find an angle that I went, oh yeah, this is the bit of Denver I remember, or that's the bit of Denver I remember. It just felt like an entirely, what whatever used to be there had now been this this great big kind of, you know, sandcastle bucket of, of high-rise glassy and concrete blocks had just been placed over whatever had been there before. And so I looked around and, and I thought about things like, I mean, one of my Another of the kind of main memories I had of being in Denver in 1988 was uh, a piece of artwork by a guy called, I think, John DeAndrea. I think it's John DeAndrea, called Linda. And it was the first time I experienced hyper-realism. Uh, and, and Linda is a, a, a sleeping figure, a kind of uh, a, a naked sleeping figure, I think, with just a, a, a sheet over. And it's one of those things where... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you'll have seen other people who do that kind of work where, where you just, you'd love to touch it because it looks so much like real flesh. But I'm sure if you actually touched it, then that magic spell would be ruined because it would turn out it felt nothing like flesh and it was probably really solid. But the colour of it, it was the first time I'd seen such kind of fleshy, fleshiness 
really in 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 the world of art and uh, and so uh, Ron Muek is someone who does work like that and uh, also someone else that I saw her work in uh, the National Museum the National Art Gallery uh, in Canberra in Australia uh, was uh, uh, Patricia Piccini uh, have a look at her stuff by the way Patricia Puccini does these great things a bit like Ron Muek who sometimes makes kind of strange homunculus figures um, uh, if, so sometimes he makes very very small figures sometimes he makes very very big figures and, and when, when you look at them because of the fleshy fleshiness of them the longer you look the more you kind of get a sense that you can almost see these figures breathing you can see them moving. Your, your your brain decides, surely that is breathing. And so it's almost like you get an illusion of breathing. breathing. And, and Patricia Piccini, I think it is, is uh, uh, Piccinini, Piccinini. Um, she does these uh, really fabulous fairy tale-like figures that are, are both at times wonderfully cute and also terribly ugly and kind of, you know, there's a, some of them have a kind of naked mole rat look to them. Uh, but yeah, they, they are they are so beautiful. And I remember looking at those in, in Canberra. And again, you start to see these uh, fantastical figures kind of breathing and a sense of, of, of imminent movement at all times. So uh, look up all of those people. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Find exhibitions where things of theirs. That that one that where I saw uh, Patricia Piccinini's uh, stuff was um, actually called Hyperreal, as far as I remember that exhibition. There's a book of Hyperreal, and I recommend uh, that, as well as her own books of... Uh, of her work it is that it's that thing that some of them there's some sense that they look monstrous the figures she creates but you also see in the way that she creates them this this need that they have for love and that makes them kind of lovable and and approachable as well Anyway, so that was that was my Denver of nineteen eighty eight in the past, and then my Canberra probably of uh, two thousand nineteen or something like that. And uh, anyway, but where was I originally? As you know, I'd I'd, uh, I'd I'll take you back to having finished that overly sugary lunch with that uh, the, the the cheesecake that the waiter asked so much. Are you sure this cheesecake's fine? It is. Fine. Yeah, you know, it's a lovely cheesecake. It's a lovely cheesecake. I thought I think he was one of those waiters who was worried that because we were English, we wouldn't tip. And actually, we always tip, and we normally tip, you know, 20% tip. That's pretty much it, sometimes a little bit more as well. But I think he thought, I have to keep playing the part of the Sartre waiter just to remind them that I'm doing a job and I am deserving of a tip because I was so worried about our cheesecake. I had such worry for how they would react to the cheesecake. I have so, shown so much love and fear around the cheesecake that uh, eventually they'll say, ah, oh, his demand for pudding critique makes him worthy of our money. But he was worthy of our money um, already. So, we stuffed our faces at lunchtime, and uh, though I mainly had lettuce, I've been having a lot of very good quality lettuce with ranch dressing while I've been in America, and I've actually lost a little bit of bit of weight by having so much lettuce. And um, Brian decided, even though it's not not a gig day, I think he he said he did that normal thing. Oh, I'm going to go and write my book about the black hole, and then I knew that whenever I got back, he'd say, oh, "I just had a sleep." So he he went to go and have one of his refreshing, uh, life enhancing, uh, skin de aging, uh, or skin youthifying sleeps, and uh, I thought I need to get lost again because. I need to see, find, I need to find at least one little bit of Denver, which is the bit of Denver I recognise from all those years ago. So I, I did my normal thing, which is I looked up Denver bookshops and uh, I looked for one that was kind of a little bit out of the way that would require me doing quite a bit of a walk. And um, 
and it is you know and also one of those ones the further out of the way the bookshop was the more likely i would be to find some kind of fascinating uh ephemera and uh because, I mean, part of the thing about getting lost is basically we normally stay in that kind of hotel area where it is all hotels and car parks and the financial part of the city. Um, and so that gives you no real taste of the city. That would only give you a taste of the nature of business and uh, the success or failure of the capitalism in that particular financial district, you know, where this is where hedge fund managers uh this 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 is where not where they live this is where they drive into the underground car park and they go up to the internal starbucks for there and then they they will work in the office and then they will go down into the internal car park and they will die uh, drive back into their uh into their their rockies based rural idyll or wherever they might be so of course in those kind of areas you don't really find second-hand bookshops either because hedge fund managers don't make their money due to an overwhelming fascination with books about obscure Spanish exploitation films and uh, ritual animal mask use in folklore which of course are two of the genres that particularly fascinate me. Of course they may have a desire to invest in a first edition of The Hobbit but they you know only really want it to rip off the binding put on a new leather jacket uh which to me is a terrible thing it's like you know the 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 flaying of 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 a corpse uh for a self-serving financial conjuring trick uh which destroys something ancient and and uh delightful but yeah they they might be interested in something like that as an investment but uh i'm not seeking books about ritual animal mask use in uh, myth and folklore for investment I'm just seeking them to get a greater range of possible deer masks that I can create. Today, the bookshop I decided on was Kilgore Books and Comics, as it was about a mile and a half away. And also, so, so one, I'm going to be able to get lost somewhere and I'm going to see things that I wouldn't have seen if I didn't walk in that direction, if I didn't get lost in, in, in on the way. And two, I thought, I reckon it's highly likely they're called Kilgore Books and Comics after Kurt Vonnegut's Kilgore Trout, which it, it's, I am such an idiot. There, It was only when uh, I was watching the documentary Unstuck in Time, fantastic documentary, um, which is by Bob Whitey, um, all about... Kurt Vonnegut, he was friends with Kurt Vonnegut. They filmed it for kind of on and off for 39 years. Obviously on and off for 39 years. If they only filmed it on for 39 years, 39 years is too long of a running time. I'm sure eventually there'll be a Marvel Avengers film that is 39 years long, but this is this run running time's about two hours. And I never realised Kilgore Trout is, of course, just a, a really wordplay around Theodore Sturgeon was staring at me all of the time but it took me 30 years to find out Kilgore Trout Theodore Sturgeon what a fool I don't even know if I deserve the books of Kurt Vonnegut for being such a fool um anyway so I start started the walk and uh plenty of hotels plenty of car parks plenty of anonymous glass buildings then a church that looked kind of intriguing and reasonably uh welcoming and uh then more glass buildings these kind of glass buildings that hide a possibly a myriad of capitalist sins because they only reveal your own reflection as you stare towards that great big financial building you see yourself and go i am part of the problem too and uh then there were kind of um stone edifices that i started to stumble across those ones which were all about liberty and justice all of those things carved into them and uh, of course as usual when I get close to the area of the city where the great 
big statues promising liberty and justice are this is also where there are the encampments uh which are fueled by extreme poverty and psychiatric despair and uh, so i so i walked through that area and uh just uh, the, the the sadness of seeing all of these municipal buildings that are built on this supposed ideology of an american dream and of liberty and fraternity for all and here you see so many people who are isolated um without assent and it's 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 always seems to be it's it's in in those areas um and then i just kept kept walking and uh eventually i started to find the streets where the quirks begin enigmatically closed diners loads of yoga outlets uh including courage us yoga uh and uh, and then there was kind of like there's just this square this block this block of bleakly inviting bricks and it was just called black box and uh, of course that turned out to be denver's leading underground music venue and it was yeah it, it was it was like I, I would have loved to have had time to go there it looked fascinating and uh just before I arrived at Kilgore, I came face to face with a mural of Lemmy, of Lemmy from Motad, and uh, they was decorating the side of Wax Tracks Records. Um, it was a wonderful thing because I'm, I'm always I, I I saw Lemmy at the Classic Rock Awards only probably a month and a half before he died, and uh, everyone that I was with. Uh, sat around the table um, was really moved by seeing him because they all could see that he was clearly ill and uh, and of course there was so much love for Lemmy uh, especially around my table where we were all drinking Iron Maiden's Trooper beer and Cleo Roxy's tequila and uh, yeah anyway so so it was a it was a great thing to see this Lemmy mural and uh, and then I went straight into Kilgore Books and I kind of didn't want to find anything. I wanted this just to be where I'd had to walk to because I've really now built up quite a few books. And uh, the first thing it was, it had a display of research books. And if you know research or our research, I think it's re research books, I was calling that. Um, and I love a lot of those books. They do books on things like modern primitives and the nature of kind of uh, circus freak shows and uh, modern paganism and uh, incredibly strange films, all of that kind of stuff. But fortunately, the first thing I see is an expensive edition of J.G. Ballard's The Atrocity Exhibition, which I already have, so that's fine. But I do not have the book of interviews with Henry Rollins, Billy Childish, Jello Biafra and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. So I kind of just leave it there and I think hopefully in the time I'm here, someone else will purchase it so that I know its destiny was not to be mine. And I start looking at the local zines and uh, comic books. And I decided I would get this one called Blamo by I think it's Noah Van Skiver or Noah Van Skiver, uh, because I knew this was actually being produced, published by Kilgore Books. So I thought, well, this is something that is very Denver, this is very Denver-based, so it'd be nice to take home a comic book, which is which comes from this bookshop. Um, and, and is kind of, and that's where, where it actually grew out of, of, of this bookshop. So I go to the counter, and unfortunately, uh, the Biafra, Ferlinghetti, Childish, etc. interviews are still there. So it turns out it was meant to be mine and I start chatting to the bookseller and uh, we talk about different bookshops around the world and I tell him about some of the ones in Toronto that I particularly love and he's never been to Toronto and he has been to Vancouver so we talk about some of our favorite kind of bookshops in Vancouver and then he gives me a trout sticker that is drawn by Noah as well so I place that as my bookmark and uh, he yeah he's someone who just can't resist books the bookseller and uh, so I, I leave it's reasonably light my load 
and then I deliberately go back another way, we through the back streets, uh, and again, see so just it's. I love the architecture and sometimes the, the different ways that people have done their front yards and the different kind of flags that sometimes fly out there, and, and the flags and you know very rarely do I see a stars and stripes. You know, at the moment in particular, there's kind of pride flags, and then I walk past certain shops that basically say we welcome everyone. Uh, uh, you know, all, uh, what, what, whatever uh, color, class, sexuality, sex you are, and all of this kind of stuff, and. I and I like walking through those areas because this is the, the here is that smattering of counterculture before I get back to the dead center. Brian has done a bit of his work on his black hole book, but mainly had a long sleep and he looks smashing for it. Um, but tonight is going to be a night where there is going to be a lot of air keyboard being played as well as ecstatic hand clapping to the mushroom clouds uh, of atom bombs. Those are my clues. Uh, I will now... Have you got it? Yeah. So it turned out Brian received a text from Andy McCluskey of Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark and uh, Andy had just noticed that we were playing the same venue they were playing in Denver the night after. So Brian was beaming because Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark are like one of his favourite bands of all time. So he was like as happy as a pig in a metaphor. And our night out was therefore sorted. He was like, come on, let's go and see orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. And I knew in the way he said it, there was no choice. We had to go and see orchestral manoeuvres in the dark. And uh, I, I was kind of worried. We only had like one glass of wine before we went because I thought if we have two glasses of wine, Brian will storm the stage. He'll demand to play the keyboards during Tesla Girls. And uh, and then he'll, he'll, he'll run away from his science show to join the synth circus. And I thought, you know, the, the producer of our shows will be furious if Brian joins the synth circus. The audience that night were so elated throughout the show. I'd also forgotten that, of course, uh, Orchestral Moves in the Dark, two of their songs, I think, are in John Hughes movies. And, of course, for a certain generation uh, of people who grew up in the 80s, John Hughes, that extra bit of kind of excitement. So it meant that there there was such a huge amount of nostalgia that bursted out and people kind of pogoing around and Andy McCluskey uh, throwing wonderful shapes uh, with his windmilling arms. And uh, there was there's just something so delightful about seeing a band turn martyrs that are burnt at the stake nuclear war and the end of life in the universe into just a great big party great big synth party and um i think that because brian's seen this in the same venue that we're going to be playing tomorrow he will probably tonight try and write some sing-along equations to do because I think that's that's how he would like the audience to react. He'd like to see them pogoing and singing along to any accurate information about the Schwarzschild radius. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Taking the Universe Around the World and as usual thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton and everyone who makes this show possible by supporting us via Patreon so you can just go if you don't support us via Patreon go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles see you next time this podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network